Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, December 3rd, 2010. I am on the road to Memphis. still hard to believe what I'm doing. I've been invited to speak at an emergent-type reunion with the Outlaw Preachers. Not because I agree with them, but because I disagree. Strange days. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, because I'm on the road, uh, we have something a little bit different that we're doing today. What I'm going to be doing is playing the balance of my debate with Doug Paget, And I'm going to do this with, well, only one break. And so I have no idea where it's going to fall. I have to decide that as I'm listening along, you know, while recording today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. That being said, let me tell you if you if you if you, you want to get the full flow, you're going to have to go backwards in time and uh, grab the uh, uh, the the first hour, uh, the opening arguments and the uh, initial rebuttals. Uh, in order to figure out where we're at here, because what's going to occur at this point in the debate is uh, two cross examinations. Um, and with a rebuttal in between and then closing arguments. And uh, you'll notice that I went easy on Doug during the first uh, the first cross-examination. That was intentional. I, you know, I wanted to begin to build uh, something that I didn't that and that I really didn't spring until the second uh, cross-examination. So keep that in mind. Uh, there, there. I mean, the second cross examinations are worth their weight in gold as far as uh, Doug Doug's responses, uh, because uh, he he's what what he's on record saying there is very important, and uh, and so and then you'll notice then what happens though it goes uh, cross examination cross examinations rebuttal cross examination closing arguments audience questions, and Doug Paget. I mean, he was not defending the affirmative thesis, yet he had 95% of the questions. I, I mean, it's just, it was ridiculous. And uh, I think the reason why he got bombarded with so many questions is because of some of the crazy things that he was saying and stating. So uh, that being the case, it, it's worth listening to and uh, passing along. And I apologize for the tardiness in getting this out to you. So without any further ado, here is uh, my debate 
uh, the balance of my debate with Doug Paget. All right, we're going to uh, to begin here. Um, we've moved. Uh, the, the debaters have chosen to sit close to each other for the cross-examination <laughs> because they want to convey to you that they like each other and are friends, which they are and do, which is pretty cool. Um, Chris will, will, be, will now have 15 minutes to ask questions of Doug. Um, just so the audience is aware, uh, Chris is free to cut Doug off. Uh, as he so desires, he's not being rude. He's simply being effective at this time if he so chooses. Chris, whenever you're ready. All right, let's begin. And maybe worth noting that he's, he has to ask questions, not make statements. Yes, yes. Chris is not going to be making statements at this time. <laughs> All right. We're ready? We're ready. All right, let's begin. Doug, how was the flight over? It's <laughs> <laughs> fine. I feel like Mark Zuckerberg sitting with that. Uh, yeah, it was fine. It was good. Now, you were in Paso Robles just before you came up here. I was. Now, why? No, I wasn't. Why did you? Well, I was. So should I answer that I was or that I wasn't? Tell me. Well, we talked last week. Because I was I was before I came here, but not just before I came okay. here. Okay. And wh why again did you not visit the wineries? Yeah, okay, so, so I was in a part of California that's, that's very fine with wine, and I was busy and had to work the entire time preaching at a church and couldn't go to a single winery. Yeah, but did did benefit from the uh, from the fruits of the labor. Now, do you not think that this proves that, that you're a heretic? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it does. It does put me into wine heresy very easily yeah. that I would go to wine country and not visit a single winery. Did I? Do I need to say more? All right, I want to come back to something that you said. Let me form my question. You made the argument that in the verse that I didn't uh, read, really for the sake of time, not because I was avoiding it that uh, when Jesus said in the sun, that they will shine like the sun, that that somehow negates the, you know, the picture of fiery furnace. Let me, let me ask, can, let me work through the text with you real quick. And if you have your Bible, it's uh, Matthew 13. I'll start at verse 36. Apparently something important is going on. <laughs> All right. Here's where uh, Matthew's uh, eyewitness testimony begins. It says, Then they left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He explained, The one who sows this good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. The reapers are the angels. Um, first question is... Uh, it, does it not appear that Jesus is getting, giving a literal interpretation no. of his language? It doesn't, it doesn't view that way to me at all. Okay, I'm I think he's basis. giving a metaphoric, metaphorical answer to the parable. So he's giving, so Jesus was using parabolic language, yeah. and now he's giving metaphor, a metaphorical yes. interpretation of parabolic language. That's right. Okay. Just, just as he does later in the part about the sun, mm -hmm. he doesn't shift from literal, that last punchline. Okay, so let me continue. So just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The yeah, that's imagery. Okay, and the Son of Man will be, ascend his angels. Mm -hmm. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers mm -hmm. and throw them into the fiery furnace, mm -hmm. to Daimoneon, to Purus, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So if I heard you correctly, the shine like the sun uh, 
portion of this passage in verse 43 negates a literal understanding of by referendum. No, what I'm saying is your interpretation that it has to be literal and not metaphoric puts you in jeopardy when you come to that verse. Okay. Because now you have to say that verse is either a metaphor or not. Okay, so if, let's, that, let's, let, me, let, me, let me ask, if it's a metaphor, then I should understand that fiery furnace means something else. It's a metaphor. Okay, should I also then, if I'm being consistent then, because shine like the sun, it is metaphorical that Jesus was also then using your own logic here. Jesus was speaking metaphorically when he said it's the sun and the angels and yeah. and all. So Jesus right. wasn't he was only metaphorically speaking about himself. No, yes, he was using a title. Son of man is a title. Yeah. He's using a title and he's connecting that actually in spiritual metaphor back to Daniel, right? So what he's doing is he's painting a picture. He's not giving a literal interpretation. Your view of when he explains the parable to them, the way people want something explained is in literal terms. That's what I have a beef with. What's that the picture that Jesus is trying to paint then? Well, I don't have to answer that question. All I have to answer well, is... I ask the question. Well, the, but you're having to make the argument. I'm asking you a clarifying question. What is the You're saying Jesus is trying to paint a picture. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Explain so Jesus is painting a picture that when all things of, that God has been about, right. everything that includes the angels, and includes the past, and includes the courage, includes people, and includes the weeds, and includes everything that is, mm -hmm. when all of that is remade, all will shine like the sun. That the, the, the fire there is not a place of destruction, a permanent place of ever destruction. Rather, it is imagery that Jesus uses all the way through. And when he goes into the next parable, he does the very same thing with the hidden treasure. And then he goes on with the very next thing of a prophet without honor. And so it's through that entire section that Jesus is building a big picture. I'm arguing with your interpretation of a parable that what Jesus does is gives a literal interpretation. That's not what he does. That's Jesus, not what he's doing. Jesus is explaining the parable. It says the Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out his kingdom and all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery fire. Yeah, it's all metaphor. He's explaining it with a metaphor. So Just like he says they will shine like the sun is a metaphor. Uh -huh. When I get to the question time, you can answer now to save me the question time. Well, when I get to the question, I'm going to ask you, is that a metaphor? So you can answer it now, you can answer it later. I'm breaking the rules. Yeah. So get him to stop me from doing that. Don't stop me. <laughs> so you just appeal to the moderator that I'm not answering the question. Um, Jesus is using pictures mm -hmm. to explain the reality that all things will be remade by God. Where's the part where it says that all things will be remade? When, the sun, when they shine like the sun. But who's shining like the sun in the text? But it's not in the text. Then the righteous, the DKIOS. Yes, and all are made righteous. No, no, it says well, the righteous will shine like we the can sun. Di yeah, and all are made righteous. So we can differ about what you think the spiritual meaning of that is. That's fair. But what I did was I said your own internal language, your own internal argument about that being ex literal explanation and not metaphor is inconsistent with the very text itself. Well, let me that's, ask us a second. I have a follow-up question. If Jesus is basically trying to make the statement that all are made righteous and everybody's going to shine like the sun, then what's the whole point about talk, tossing people into the fiery furnace? 
It is, it is imagery about how it is that people are made righteous. In the Daniel piece, what you have are these, two, these three men thrown into the fiery furnace, and when they come out, they are righteous. This is the imagery that Jesus is using. Jesus is using the faithfulness of these that have come out, and even the wicked are made righteous. Now in Daniel chapter 3, where does it say that they came out of the fire righteous? They came out right living, right storying what God did that God saved them. That is righteousness. What I'm going to be arguing for later on tonight if you want is that your view of, of, of righteousness is where all of this falls off the tracks. The, 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 the story that you've imported into the Gospels through an Augustine reading of, of the New Testament is where all of this gets, gets crazy and it's why it, when I explain Jesus' activity here it's as if there's no place in there for it because that construct of the tribe that you have followed has no place to understand these parables in any way other than to support that system. Don't you think it would have made more sense for Jesus if he was trying to basically say that everyone's made righteous and everyone will shine like the sun, that he just should have said that when the Son of Man comes with his angels, he's going to gather everybody up, throw yeah. a big party, and we're all going to shine like the sun. Hey, so What's the part of that? Why would he well, throw this piece well, here about if, look, throwing lawbreakers into the I get it. I get it. If the, if the argument is why... Hey, Doug, tell me why Jesus wouldn't have been clearer. I'm going to save that question for you. Why would Jesus have not been clearer? So, fair enough. Um, Jesus is perfectly clear as to what that means. When someone says the wheats and the tares, the righteous and the unrighteous, how do you separate those? When you're in the first century environment, you have the Pharisees saying they're righteous. You have Jesus declaring that the followers of, he, of him are righteous. And you have other people saying you both can't be righteous to that Jesus says, that's where you don't get it right. Don't worry about the wheat. Don't worry about the tares. Stop doing that. This is actually a parable that says, stop putting people in those categories. Okay. No. Well, that's... You're not supposed to make statements. You're not supposed to ask. <laughs> it, it was really, truly a question. Okay. WTF. So if you don't understand that parables are telling the bigger story of God's full participation of Gentiles and Jews, of righteous and unrighteous together, if you don't have that storyline, then one just simply has to say, I'm going to break this verse apart, these words are going to be literal, these ones aren't, and this is going to be explanation, and this one isn't, and now you're going to get a very complicated word game, and it's going to feel like that scene on a Princess Bride where someone can say, now you can clearly not drink the wine in front of me. When, when the scriptures say that we're to feed the poor, is that literal, or should I understand that metaphorically? Literally. Why? Because he says, feed the poor. <laughs> okay, well, Jesus also said in Matthew 7, 13, 14, says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and yeah, you know when someone is using language. It's not, it's not difficult to interpret when someone's using metaphoric language. Like when he says stuff about the gate. When he says, I am the gate. I am the vine. I am any well, Let me finish forming my question. Oh, sorry. He says, those who enter by it are many, and the gate that is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Yeah. So basically, it sounds to me like any time we're talking about literal judgment, we need to understand it metaphorically. 
in your worldview. But anytime Jesus said, or the scriptures say to feed the poor, well, that's to be understood no, literally, no, no, but no, not, no, not no, metaphorically. Yeah. No, no, no. Thank so, you. Thank you. <coughs> to clarify that. No, I don't mean that at all. I think when Jesus says this is about judgment, then we say, what language set is he using about judgment? My, my argument with you here is that you decided to use Matthew 13 in a way to say, here it's metaphor, and what I would call parable, and here is literal explanation of the metaphor. And I'm saying that can't be because the verse that, because time was so tight, sorry that was sarcastic, because time was so tight, you couldn't include it, and then I have to say, I don't think it's because time was tight. I feel like it's because when you saw it, either in consciously or subconsciously, it's like, well, that's obviously a line of metaphor. Now, thank you. I think you're engaging in psychologizing at this point. A little bit. I'm qualified to practice that. Oh. Yeah, probably not. I won't know you. I won't know you. This, um, that, that, that construct that you've used for the entire argument for this debate, doesn't work what is based the on the text itself. What is the fundamental difference between parable and metaphor? That metaphor is using simply a word picture, okay. and a parable is telling a larger story using word pictures. Yeah, well, using all kinds of things. There could be there could be literal statements in a parable. There could be word pictures in a parable. The parable is in its completeness a parable, and a metaphor functions within a certain phrase or sentence. So a metaphor is a small thing. A parable is long. It, you, you know this. You know that a parable is not just a metaphor. So you take a parable and said it's metaphor only because you needed it to be literal, is what I think. That's my opinion. Yeah, but I might be deep psychology. I'm still confused what the fundamental difference between parable and metaphor no, is in your definition because it sounds to me like a difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. It, no, okay, parables well, engage in metaphorical language. Here's the difference. No, a parable is a whole story yeah. that's making a point. Using metaphorical language. Using not just metaphorical language. Okay. Using all kinds of language. Using literal language, using comparative language, using metaphor. It's not restricted to a single type of language. That is not a parable. You can, we can spend all the time, and I can do it during mine. We can walk through all the parables. And, and when it says that a woman went into her house and she swept up all the, all the place trying to find the hidden treasure, that's not like, well, it wasn't really a broom she was using. That broom is metaphor. That's not what he's doing. He's using a real-life kind of experience, and he's explaining a bigger story. Yeah, and he uses metaphor in the... But didn't Jesus explain the, the whole story and like deconstruct the whole thing? No, so that's the not disciples what wouldn't under, they would understand what he was talking about. Yes, but what he uses to explain it is metaphor. Okay, because he was speaking parabolically, metaphorically at first, no, but then he uses metaphor to explain parable. No, he's using parable. Then he uses spiritual metaphor, connecting it to Old Testament, connecting it to current situation, and all of this language to spiritually explain. And then he, in that explanation, he uses a variety of metaphors. So do you I mean, think this is an English, English class, and all of this hinges on the same. Thank you. Do you think that the, uh, that the uneducated 
first century, Palestinians uh -huh. understood all of these distinctions oh, between metaphor and parable, and so that they, they, they knew immediately to switch into these modes yes. as they were hearing Abs them. Absolutely, just as we were. You can go to any culture, any illiterate culture today, and you can speak in parables, and you can speak in metaphor. They know it, and they understand it. In fact, it's primary. What they could not understand is your 20th and 21st century literalist view as if it's a one-to-one -one correlation that Jesus is using to explain. The, the, that argument is not that they wouldn't understand what I'm getting at. The argument is your educated, rational language set. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. I was right there. I was just... <laughs> you can't make any statements. It actually is very tough. So, Doug, I'll give you a, a second to get your notes ready. Thank you. Okay. Go ahead and begin. Fifteen. Minutes. Okay. So this shines like the sun. Is that a metaphor? I, I think there's good reason to think that actually he's painting a picture of what's really going to happen. Is that a metaphor? No, I, it goes back to the glorification. You know, so when we look at eschatological categories here, you've got, we've got the saved and the damned. We've got the righteous and the unrighteous. We have uh, those who are righteous and those who are lawbreakers. And uh, when, we look, when we look at this in light of other passages, uh, there's an understanding that uh, in the resurrection that, we're, that uh, those who are righteous are glorified. And so there's other passages that kind of bear so out. So when you picture. put up, thank you, when you put up on the, on the screen the literal, the, the word fiery furnace and what it literally means, mm -hmm. what would you have done for the literal phrase for shines like the sun? That was actually not part of the original parable. It is. It's the explanation. It's what? right in the explanation. There's no place, that the parable, that the explanation of the parable begins... Mm -hmm. And the explanation ends with, those who have ears, let them hear. Well, and before those who have ears, let them hear, I'm asking you, do you believe that that, I have to paraphrase this in the form of a question. It's like power jeopardy. <laughs> who is the Apostle John? Yeah, right. Does that line, I mean, we can put it up there, I guess I'm not. But does that line, they will sh then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. What would you put up as the literal meaning that that represents. What is that? Well, let me answer you from the text. Back in Matthew chapter 13, the, the parable ends in verse 30. Let me read from verse 29. Yeah. But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds, first bind them into the bundles and be burned, and gather the wheat into my barn. Yeah, another parable. Uh, no, no that, that, that's where the parable ends. So the part about the science shines like the sun, Jesus is elaborating there at the part about the barn. Gather the good stuff and put it in the okay. barn. So the, argument, that looks so, so the argument is he gives a parable, mm -hmm. and then he gives a literal explanation until he comes to that line. And when he comes to that line, now he's painting a picture or making a comparison. No. Is the, that right? Is picture, that right? The picture, was, the picture Is that right or not right? So we answer the question. The picture is the weed. <laughs> I, I have a few good men running through my head. Oh, answer man. the question. <laughs> you can't handle the truth. Yeah, right. Okay, so I'll stop. This is my question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my view. Uh, would you agree with my view? Um, you believe that I'm right? That you I have violated. I know, question. but I get to do this. <laughs> that I am right, you believe that I am right when I say that you broke your own code that you put up on the screen by saying it was literal 
explanation and not use a metaphor. No, okay, because you, I know, I know, we both. So we're going to disagree on that. But yeah, everyone, the answer, you know, everyone the question has to is that I, I just forgot a metaphor: the weed in the barn. The answer, that's not a metaphor. That yeah, shines like, okay, weed in the done. barn is the metaphor, and the literal interpretation is is that they're gathered into the kingdom and they shine like the sun. It's talking. So they're about, literally going to shine like the sun. It's talking about the eschaton. Let me ask you this. If, if, if any other place in your life of reading, have you ever seen the construct in English or in Greek of a phrase, shine, they will shine like the sun, that would not be interpreted as a metaphor? Anywhere else? Yes. It's Moses on Mount Sinai. He spends time with God in the presence of God, and he comes down, and his face is shining like the sun. Shining like the sun. And he ends up having to put and a veil over his face. And let me that's say, literal. You don't think that's a, you, you don't think it meant that he was glowing. You think that it was as if his head had turned in to the sun in the in the sky. His, it wasn't a word picture. It wasn't a word picture. Okay, then we're, then we're done with that. Okay. <laughs> of course it's a word picture. That's a... Then why did he cover his face? Why did he cover his face? Chris, it's not your time to ask questions. <laughs> center of the cosmos. <laughs> I'm glad you asked this question because a couple years ago I was sitting at Great Clips waiting, to, waiting in line to get a haircut and, I was, and there was a copy of Discover Magazine right there sitting on, on the table so I picked it up and started flipping through it and they were talking about Hubble observations and they had a three-dimensional model of the universe and ironically, we're kind of in the center of it. So I don't, I don't Do you know. believe that the Earth is the center of the universe? Or the center of the universe? Uh, based on the Discovery Magazine article, it, I, I, I don't understand the complexity of that. Do you believe that the Earth revolves around the sun? Or no. Or the sun revolves around no, the No, the sun revolves around... No, the Earth revolves when around the, the sun. Earth stood when the sun stood still... That's Stephen Furtick's book. Did that happen? <laughs> did, did the sun stay, stand still, literally? Or was that a metaphor? No, I think it literally says, well, that's a good question. Uh, let me, let me, but from the observation of the one on Earth, it looks like the sun's the So is it simply an observational statement, or did it actually happen? In that case, it looked like to the observer okay. that it, the sun's Is there still. a difference between, in Scripture, the reality and what someone observed? In what sense? I mean, the context. Well, is there a difference that something happened? Is the Scripture full of what happened, or is the Scripture full of what people observed? What, so did the sun actually stand still, or did someone just think it stood still? From the point of view of the observer, it looked like the sun stood still. So they Earth. thought it did, mm -hmm. but it may not have. Well, see, again, what's your reference? Uh, that, that story. Well, in that particular case. It seems odd that you won't answer it. I'll take that. I'll take that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to answer that. You should talk to Stephen Furtick about it. No, I I'm asking you, because it gets to your notion of, of how the scripture is. Okay, let, let me ask you this one about the, about the, the church fathers that I spoke okay. about earlier. Um, you uh, are, are well studied in the Patristic Fathers, uh, far far more than I am, probably anyone in this room. Um, that might be an overstatement. Okay. Oh. Um, no, I think you know more about the Patristic Fathers than I do, but I appreciate the fact that you don't, maybe don't think so. Um, you bet somebody else in the room knows more, don't you? Yeah. Um, I know, I know. I know. Um, um, did, uh, are there any points at which, on things that you determine to be important, 
that you are not in agreement with all of the patristic and early church fathers. I'm, I'm, of course. So how do you pick and choose which topics you have right and which topics they have right? Well, the way I look at it is, let me take Clement of, uh, Clement of uh, Rome, for instance, in his epistle to the Corinthians. Clement of Rome actually tries to make a, a distinction between um, uh, the resurrection, and at that time, he believed the legend of the phoenix, that the phoenix was an actual bird. And so he writes about this thing that he's never observed it or seen it. And so in that particular case, and can take a look and say, I, you know, I, I, it sounds like legend to me. I don't think that, uh, that you know, so I disagree with yeah, that. Yeah, so he might have a view about the reality, about the legitimacy of the Right. And, and, anything, and, and, anything important about where they came down and said, a, a church, a patristic father, said, I, 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 I'm seeing it this way. For instance, or And you're like, you know what? I really don't know like this. Uh, no, I, I Ultimately, it comes down to all me, you, the church fathers, everybody else. We all have to be judged by the Word of God. Because I, I listen, my, I, I could come up with some crazy ideas. Like what? That wouldn't make which ones have you come up with? Which, which crazy ideas have you come up with? That, that and you've talked to people, and now you've said, "Oh boy, I really wish I hadn't taught that to somebody." What, what's, what's an example of that? I, you know, or is this just that? Is this just that? In theory, you could come up with crazy ideas, but you never actually have. I no, I have. Which ones? Give us only seven minutes. Okay. No, I, I'd rather not go down this, this, this line. It's, it's rather embarrassing. <laughs> there was a time when I was a full-blown uh, new apostolic, charismatic, and uh, was involved in deliverance and inner healing ministry. And there were some bizarre things that occurred yeah. during that. And I thought I was hearing the voice of God, and come to find out that I probably just hearing my own diagnosis. How do you know that's not what's happening now when you're reading the, the, the fathers? What, how you're understanding them well, isn't something like, how, what, what saved you from that as being not, 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 I'm not saying it happens all the time, but of that being a possibility? Well, again, you, what's the, if we're going to be talking about things of God, I come back to the point that we need something objective we can hang our hat on. And so myself, you, and even the patristics, they have to be judged against okay. the word of God. In, in what way is the Bible objective? In what way would you say that the Bible is the cared narrative of a lived people? Um, what makes it objective, in other words? What makes it objective? Yeah, you're, you're using a scientist, I made, I made an accusation to you earlier, that you're using physical science language for social science, in the science world, right. for social science material, mm -hmm. for which every physical scientist and social scientist that I know of makes a very precise and important distinction. And I feel that you are making physical science kinds of references, mm -hmm. empirical objectivism, for in the areas of social science, and no one else that I know of in those fields does that. How is it that that makes sense to you? Now, to answer your question, I. During my presupposition speech, I made it clear that what I was uh, doing was employing the tools of the science of historiography. Yes, but no one in the, is it not true? <laughs> is it not true that in the in the uh, in the in the historicity in the study of historicity that no one in that field, broadly speaking, the people in that field do not normally call historicity objective imperials and empiricism. Um, they do consider it to be an objective form of data, but it also has to be, you have to look at it in yeah, there, context. Right, there's data, yeah. but the data is not empirical evidence. Well, is that not empirical true? Is that evidence true? at its core is something that's, but, but but is it that's not, observed. I understand that's that. I understand that, but is it not true 
that that's not the language set used, and you borrowed from another tradition to bring it into the explanation of your Sure, tradition. sure, why not? Well, no, I'm not sure why not. Do you know you do that on purpose? Because I'm passive-aggressive, I'm sure. No, but do you do it on purpose? No. Okay. And there's no, there's no okay. malicious intent. No. But, but when you break, when, when, when you claim a, a storyline, and then don't follow that storyline, and then claim an objectivity that does not come from that form of study, does that feel to you as if you're doing something inappropriate by claiming objectivism through subjective lines of inquiry? Now, inappropriate it would imply that there's some kind of malicious intent. Yeah, do you feel it's inappropriate? No, absolutely okay. no. That's what I was getting. So I don't think, I, I mean, you I, were I, inconsistent. You called me saying I was being flippant regarding God. No, oh, but you were kind of flippant about God at the end of your rebuttal. I mean, yeah, but I, 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 I call no, you on flippancy, and so what's the standard here? Well, um, that one doesn't fear God in my world. So one can be rather pleasant about God. One can't be so. I'm answering your question. Stop me, moderator. I exactly tricked you. Before I say something <laughs> I don't want to say. I use my mental rules. Yeah, you tricked me. <laughs> this is what you do with your fancy postmodern words where parable doesn't mean parable and where metaphor doesn't mean metaphor. Literal doesn't mean literal and where, and where objectivism doesn't mean objectivism and where empiricism does not mean empiricism. And I have to say to you, does it at all tinge you at all that I have this view of you? Does it, this is a really tricky question. Does it feel strange to you that I say, I think you are doing with language something inconsistent to your own system? So you're using words to mean something that in the rest of tradition, they don't mean those things. Terrible and metaphor and literalism and metaphor and uh, empiricism and historicity. And which, which part of this question am I supposed to answer? Let, let, let me try it. Does it bother you? Does, does it twinge you at all? Does it make you think, God, like you might be right about that? No. <laughs> Stunning. Stunning. <laughs> I figured that was going to fall off with the question. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. No, I'm done. Right, I'm you done. guys want to take your seats sure. again? We'll hopefully call it. I brought up another chair for you. You didn't even see it. I'll even toss your pen. Okay, we're going to pause right there to pay some bills. We will continue with the debate on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me with anything, with any questions, comments regarding what you're hearing on this debate with Doug Padgett on hell, uh, you can email me my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. 
they have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. Hell is real, and people really go there, and it's a place because, well, we're going to be resurrected. Bodies exist in places, plain and simple, called the Lake of Fire. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. Pick one. Fill it all out. It's great stuff. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute on a monthly basis a mere $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. Six zero three eight. All right, here is the balance of my debate with Doug Paget. Wait till you get to the audience questions uh, period. I kid you not, Doug Paget. Partway through the audience questions, choose everybody out. It's rather interesting to listen to. So here we go. Let them reset. We're going to continue with another seven and a half minutes, precisely of rebuttal for each. They Again, the question that still is really on the table 
is based upon the evidence of the eyewitnesses, what has been said by uh, Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, by John, you know, uh, regarding the future judgment. And then how that judgment was understood by Paul, how that, that judgment was understood by Peter, how it was understood by John, and then how that later got translated into the understanding of the church as they taught about this. I think it's beyond the limits of credulity to basically say that every time we talk about judgment from Jesus to Peter to Paul to Irenaeus to Tertullian to Ignatius, that every single time we're discussing judgment, we have to be speaking, not that there is no such thing as a literal judgment. There will not be people who, are, who spend an eternity under God's eternal conscious punishment. Yet, you know, the, the, the natural understanding of the words that are used, the pictures that are painted, and are consistently taught by Jesus, the apostles, and their disciples, point to a literal judgment where the unrighteous, those who are not believers, spend an eternity in God's eternal conscious torment. It is described by Jesus as the Gehenna of fire, the fiery furnace. It's described in other ways, eternal destruction. That being the case, that we have to come back. What is the best explanation? What has best explanatory power in light of these, these documents and the evidence that's presented by these eyewitnesses? It would be all too easy to just say, I dislike the picture that's being painted, so I'm going to create some kind of a, of, of a game where I can say this is metaphorical and has to be, we're talking about something bigger than all of this, and what Jesus is really saying is that everybody is going to shine like the sun, yet nothing in the text dictates or even would warrant such a, such a, a wild interpretation. What was the point of Jesus talking about the unrighteous being thrown into a fiery furnace? So, you know, it, it basically using, I, I need some kind of postmodern decoder ring or some kind of postmodern spectacles that I can, every time I take a look at a text, it will it, it alert me to where I can say, no, 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 there's no such thing as this conscious talk that, that everybody's in. And yet, in fact, the reality is, is that I don't see any passages, any passages whatsoever in Scripture that would argue against the picture that Jesus makes. Jesus speaking plainly, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to it, and those who find it are few. Why would he be talking in language like this when it would be, if, if he intended to say, listen, got you all covered, everybody's in, he should be saying, listen, the highway in, 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 in is huge, everybody's on it, let's party. And yet he doesn't argue like that at all. Over and again, there's a dichotomy made between the righteous and the unrighteous, the saved and the unsaved, those who believe and those who refuse to believe, those who pervert the truth and those who tell the truth. And for those who are in the unrighteous, non-truth tellers who make things up and blaspheme the name of God and cause people to sin, over and again, it, the scriptures paint the pictures of those who suffer God's wrath and eternal punishment you know, and being recompensed for their wicked deeds. And all so tragically, because at the end of Matthew 25, Jesus makes it clear that those who depart into the eternal fire 
It wasn't prepared for man. It was created for the devil and the angels. The other thing I thought was interesting is that Doug talked about the KJV, and I'm not sure how that even got brought up. I don't read the KJV. Do you know what do? We're not in the Baptist church, are we? No. I don't use the KJV, and I wasn't arguing from the KJV. And not only that, you made reference points to the Old Testament, and not a single one of my arguments uh, rested on the Old Testament. Instead, the argument is simple. Jesus talked this way. He, when he was speaking in metaphorical language, he interpreted. The interpretation gives us a, 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 the way to properly understand and orient ourselves with the parable. And that that literal interpretation then is carried on by the disciples and on into the church. And the data is there in the, in the text. It's there in the writings of the apostles, and it's there in the writings of the apostolic fathers, and it's consistent. It's a consistent line. In fact, this this was also not even remotely disputed during the time of the Reformation between the Lutheran, the Calvinist, and the, and the Catholics. They all agreed that the scriptures clearly teach that there's a coming judgment. And, you know, if, if this was really up for dispute, this hasn't really been disputed until the rise of, uh, of modernist liberalism. Thank you, Doug, for your uh, rebuttal there. Uh, wow, thank you. <laughs> Two years in a row. Man. Yeah, it's... <clears throat> we, we use the language that we know. That's not a problem. The categories that we have are not literal explanation and simple metaphor, but rather, how would we explain something that our language doesn't allow us to explain? And you've helped me with this quite a bit in saying, look, when, as we were preparing for this debate and conversation, uh, look, when somebody has to argue for hell, they're having to say, I, I think it was your phrase, I ain't never been there. I've got some friends, who, you know, some people tell me maybe I will, but uh, I haven't been there. So now I have to argue differently. I like that a lot, really helpful. Because what you're dealing with is that human beings do not have access to, and none of the traditions in Christianity give us a kind of specificity about our after-this-life experience that's very consistent. There's lots of, lots and lots and lots of pictures. Now, I happen to think pictures and imagery and so on is, is, is a really good and right beautiful way to talk. But when someone has to describe something, they have to use a referential language set. But that's not exactly metaphor. Not to be over in the English class again. When someone's doing the best they can, they're making an approximation. So to use your Disneyland explanation, let's say somebody wants to go to Disneyland, and they're going to go with someone else who's never been to Disneyland, and their friend asks them, what's Disneyland like? Now they say, oh, it's, it's really big, and they start describing it. Now they're not using metaphor. They're not like, it's big like the ocean. And it, you know, they're not using that. They're just describing as best they can to try to paint a picture of what it is. And they're not lying, and they're not being unhelpful. They're trying to kind of have somebody understand what it was while they grasp for life. The other day, I was thinking about how the afterlife, and I, I held my, dad, my, my, my dad's wrist when his heart beat for the last time. And you've had these experiences as well. It's very moving. My mom's quite sick in hospice, so life after death is a personal thing for me right now. And as I was thinking about that and talking with my dad previously and my mom about all of that, I was sort of struck by what we know about science currently in this kind of geeky way. Right? There's a thing that we know exists called electromagnetism. Human beings 
don't have a way to measure or read electromagnetism. We can read a lot of things. We can read sunlight, we can read brightness of light, light waves, and heat, and there's a whole set of real elements to human existence that we can't, that, that we can experience. But electromagnetism, we don't have a way to describe that experience accurately. What's going to happen to all of us in the afterlife is more like having to describe what electromagnetism is without a empirical response, an empirical experience with it. So it's a kind of thing that we know is real, but the language that we have to describe it is inaccurate simply because we have not experienced it yet. So when I say the way people have talked about afterlife judgment is the best way that they possibly could, and I believe them, even though that's not how I would say that, that is not boxing me into two simple categories of literalism or metaphor. It's rather another category where someone can say, this is how I understand things. So once someone has had experience, and they start to paint other pictures, and when I describe what, how I would view the afterlife, because this is where this direction goes, heaven and hell, and last night, you know, other afterlife and so on, um, we're now moving into language that we're having to borrow. So it's borrowed language. And we should move easily with one another when we're describing things we haven't yet experienced. We're borrowing the very best we can to try to make the most of it. What I get uncomfortable with is your argument, and maybe it's more about this debate than anything, but a particular argument that says, okay, we're unclear about a lot of it, but we're super clear about this, and that we're going to lock in on, and I have to have these words and phrases in these ways with these explanations to explain something that is a part of the glorious mystery. And so I'm not simply saying, hey, we can't know nothing, so let's just, you know, sort of have our way. No. And I'm not saying there's not consequence for the way we live our lives. I am saying the large story of God is that all things will be remade. Um, I, I will set myself up for this line because I didn't get into questioning. Um, Doug, are you a universalist? And my answer is, no, I'm not a universalist. That's too small of a narrative. I'm a recreationist. This question is not who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's not our question. Everyone, no one, some, depends. Our question is, how are all things going to be remade in the glory of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord? That becomes our big story. Revelation, heaven and earth being remade, all things being remade. And Jesus, I mean, it's so great, to, the, the way in your opening statement, watching you read, uh, you know, uh, John, the opening of John, which we're reading John as a church right now. And that was, a, I mean, a little Glenn Beck-like with the crying, but I think it was sincere. <laughs> I think it was sincere. It's so beautiful, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the darkness. And then there's this statement. The light came into the world, and the darkness, and now all of our translations give us two choices. The darkness did not understand it, or the darkness did not overcome it. Look them up. They're in there. You get your choices. If you read the NIV, it preferences did not understand it, but gives a secondary interpretation, darkness would not overcome it. In the TNIV and other translations, it flips those around. And the did not overcome it is the prime one, and did not understand it is in the footnote. And it seems to make a difference as to the 
some of the broad trajectories that Christianity has been on. Is darkness something that did not understand the light, or is it something that could not overcome the light? I would say to you that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God and the light in the beginning, and I should get this, and the darkness will not overcome it. Hell is not bigger than God. Thank you. Uh, we're now going to take another uh, brief five-minute break, uh, after which we will reconvene for our final portion. Thank you. Uh, so, Chris, you have 20 minutes to cross-examine Doug. Uh, go ahead and begin as you're ready. All right. Let's go ahead and start. Okay, Doug, you're a recreationist, you say. Um, what, on what basis do you form this doctrine? What are its major ideas? Yeah, on the basis, I think this is what the Bible says most clearly, and it's a, a, a phrase and a category that I can kind of put around it. Um, so you interpret the Bible literally when it comes to this recreationist doctrine? Sometimes, yeah. The, the Bible's full of times when you should understand it through all the means of language, sometimes literally, poetically, metaphorically, parables, how do you story How do you determine which is which is to be understood literally and not literally? Most normally, the circumstance in the writing clarifies what it is. I don't think it's hidden. I don't hold to a hidden metaphor in the stories. I don't hold to a hidden literalism in the stories. I do the very best I can along with the whole crowd of witnesses. So I would say that like my, my view is that I hold my theology in my place, but it's not just me. It's a community of people I live with, friends that I agree with and don't agree with. Those who've come before me, the past, um, those around the world right now whom I don't know, and those in the future. And I do the best I can with a real privilege that I have, and you have, to be able to connect with people like that. Or only in the last 50 years, 100 years, that people like us had the privilege to connect with people around the world uh, and read all these languages. So I try the best I can to kind of get my head around it, but I don't think the Bibles is tricky to understand as um, it seems to be to some people, or it seems to be to me sometimes. Sometimes there's things that I know I believe about it, and when I'm reading, it tells me it doesn't fit, and then, I'm in, and then I got a problem. So you use an intuitive way of determining whether it's metaphorical? I was trying to, yeah, I'm trying to say it's a communal hermeneutic. My current community, those around the world, my current life, global, those in the past, as best as I can. Okay, question. And hopefully knowing that what I'm going to do is create something Thank that you. those in the future Thank are also going to have to think about. It. Thank you. How do you know that your communal hermeneutic is more accurate than the communal hermeneutic of uh, uh, the Phelps family and the Westboro Baptist? I don't, I don't know that it is. <laughs> you don't? That's right. I believe it's not. Uh, based on what? When I hear how I describe it in my community, locally, globally, historically, I feel that's more congruent than the Phelps family, as far as I understand it. But I don't, it's not in the category, it's a category of belief, not a category of knowledge. I don't know, I believe. I believe strongly. I believe with conviction. I believe with supports. 
So would you believe with evidence that you have a more correct hermeneutic? I didn't use that word. Okay, how would you describe it? Well, with the words I just used. Okay. Reiterate. <laughs> What's the matter with those words? Why, why? It, it, I'm trying to clarify. So, I mean, does well, Shirley so Phelps Roper and, and Fred Phelps I don't have an accurate uh, hermeneutic? In, in about some sense? things, yeah. Like, those people are right about some things. Okay, where are they wrong? I don't know their entire world. I don't go through their entire, their God hates fags is a wrong way to act, in my view. I would never say that, and I would not do that, and I think it tells the story that's well, inaccurate. Why wouldn't you? Because I don't believe that. Why don't you believe it? That's not, that's not a, a right, that's not a fair question to say to someone, why don't you, now I, I don't have to give, I don't go around saying, oh, everything that exists, I have to have a rationale for why I don't believe it. I can tell you why I do believe what I do believe, but I can't tell you why I don't believe what you believe, or what your neighbor believes, or what people who live in another state believe. So the Roper family may be absolutely correct in their hermeneutic, and we can all be out to lunch. Are you raising a hypothetical? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just trying to understand. Well, a hypothetical, are you, I mean, are you literally asking me, is it possible, and I would say to you, on what standard do you, would I measure this possibility? Now you're asking me a question. Well, I mean, the only way I can answer it is if I know what standard of possible, what you mean by possible. Is it possible? What is that even? Well, I, I just find your... I can't even understand i got to be question. careful. I don't want to make a statement, but at this point... Well, make a statement. I know, no, no, I'm going to abide by the rules. Because we have them on. Um, <laughs> do, that, do that Luther like sin boldly and, and go to grace thing. Yeah, yeah I, have, I have a beer glass with that on. <laughs> okay, so um, let me ask you another question. Will Glenn Beck become a god? I, uh, I don't even understand the question. <laughs> Mormon doctrine teaches that. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't even know what that. I don't even know what you're saying. Will he become a god? I, Never even crossed my mind if Glenn Beck would become a god. Never one time has it ever, other than you right now. Well, there it is. Yeah. No, no, Glenn Beck's not going to become a god. Based on I just made that up. I don't know why he wouldn't become a god. I've never heard of somebody becoming a god. I don't, I don't have that as a category whatsoever. You don't. I mean, are you going to make me try to give you rationale for beliefs that I don't hold? I'm just trying to figure out. That's just. That's just. I'm trying to figure out where you take the Bible literally and not literally, because you seem to have a very interesting way of approaching the text. You are not. It's one of those. You know, we've been around this horn. It's one of those dishonest. Let me ask you another question. The. Twenty minutes of this. I don't even get a PSI test out of this. That was too much? <laughs> that was a punchline, but a little, you know, a little below the belt. So, the cult that believed that uh, the mothership was hiding behind the uh, Hellbop Comet, when they committed suicide, did they join the mothership no, and continue I, on? No. No. Okay, no. Why not? Because they were wrong. Why were they wrong? Because the mothership doesn't exist. How do you know? Because I believe it. Why do you believe it? Because the Bible says it. <laughs> so you were back to the Bible, you're taking the Bible literally. Yeah, the Bible literally says there is no mothership. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm, I'm cultural enough, I can, I can play the game. Yeah. And what, the way it says that is through a bunch of verses that don't say anything about the mothership. But that's why, because it doesn't say there's a mothership, there's no mothership. So then, what about the statements that give an affirmative Again, picture? Again, I mean, we can do this like all night, but you know, you know my answer to you is, it's not legitimate to ask someone to rationalize why they don't believe something. I didn't form these beliefs. You're asking me what my view is on something you have an opinion about, and then asking me why I don't believe them. Okay. That is, that's not even debate. Let me that's ask another question. Let me ask another question. Did you not basically make the argument that I'm a literalist and that I'm incorrectly handling the Bible? No. Oh, no. Was that not what you did no. during your opening statement, during your cross-examination? No. So, you, so then, then I have a correct hermeneutic. No, what I made the argument of was that you selected when you would be literalist and when you wouldn't, and the way you did it using the passage you used, you were inconsistent in the very passage at when you were moving between literalism and metaphor. But did you not just say a minute ago that you basically use intuition to figure out when No, you said I use intuition. That's what you described. No, you you said it doesn't that's feel not what right I to me. No, that's not what I described. That's what you that's the label you put on it. I told you how I try to put together my understanding of what the Bible says. You said, you said, if it doesn't feel right, I, that's how you determine. No, I didn't. I, well, no, I, I don't think I did, and I don't think it's what I would have intended to say. If, if I did, it's not what I meant. What I, said, what I tried to say was, I understand the Bible through a global, local, and historic context as best I can. Okay. That's what I do. And then you said, so it's kind of into... Yeah, but you, you take the passages literally regarding apparently being purified through fire that we're all going to be... No, I don't take that literally. That we're all going to be recreated. That, a meta those are metaphors. That we're all going to be righteous. Being, being recreated is trying... This is what I tried to say that earlier in my closing bit there. It's using the best borrowed language we can. And that's not metaphor and it's not literalism. I think you heard me on that. Now you can ignore it as a category and just keep telling me that you want me to use your two categories of literalism and metaphor and literalism and metaphor. I don't want to do that. I want to say there's borrowed language we have to use for approximation because we don't have all the language that we need. That's, that's all I'm saying. Okay. Uh, based upon uh, your, you use the metaphor of electromagnetic. I don't know what this has to do with hell right now and the debate that we're on, but I'm sure we're getting there, you know, taking the, uh, taking the long route. I need to ask. I know. <laughs> I was I was answering uh, questions coming later. <laughs> I was just early. <laughs> he said I can ask any questions. I know. I know. I was just commenting, and I shouldn't be. I'm not cheating. You're not. Although I did cheat earlier. That's why I know. Yeah. <laughs> but you know. It's... You said that uh, our, our that we should understand the biblical language regarding the afterlife much the same way we understand electromagnetism that we don't really understand electric, we can't really quantify it, it's really difficult for us to describe it, and that then you then drew the parallel between our difficulty in understanding electromagnetism with uh, the understanding of the afterlife. What are you making this assessment based on? I mean, on language and how we use it. So it's similar because we're trying to describe something that we haven't yet experienced that we know is real. No, it was Jesus God. Yes, I believe Jesus that the fullness of God dwelled in Christ Jesus. If you say to me, is Jesus God? I know us well enough 
as people who follow Jesus, that you're not committing some sort of heresy from your tradition, right. which that statement would be, that what's, yes, yes, Jesus is one with the Father and the Spirit in your tradition, and to say Jesus is God is not just shorthand, it's sloppy, my answer would be. So I would say the fullness of God dwells in Christ Jesus. Okay, that means is that case, enough? Is God not capable of using language clearly to communicate to us? Yes, God is clearly capable of using any language we have to communicate with us. God is not so capable to use language. With God and the limitations with language. You can let me not finish. That's fair. The limitation is not with God. The limitation is language. The limitation is with language. And that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The limitation is with our language. God can use any language that any words we have to communicate with us. But if there are notions and concepts of experiences we don't have, we use a proximal language to get close and do the very best we can, and we live in that ambiguity regularly. And it's not metaphor. Now let me ask you this question. You're a parent, I'm a parent. We both have kids that are in college and that age. That's a parent. Now I don't want to discuss, um, I don't want to discuss philosophy regarding uh, corrective punishment. Maybe that's kind of a can yes. of worms. But um, when you wanted to communicate to your children that you were going to punish them for some from tra some transgressions they had done wrong, uh, did you use language that informed them that they were going to be punished, or did you use some other kind of language? What other kind of language are you speaking of? I, well, metaphorical, apparently. Yeah, sometimes metaphorical. Did you tell them parables when you were going to punish them? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You don't? I usually do tell stories, but I, I well, that's, like that's you should have tried it. Okay. Try, try telling a child who's still developing and can know stories. That's what we tell them, as opposed to if-then statements that don't develop until later in life. And to give them an edict that you didn't do, a, a child of a variety of ages, two years old, twelve years old, and sometimes seventeen years old, cannot connect those things together. I can say it all I want, but if you tell them a story. It makes it far more accessible to them. Okay, so if you, that's what you mean by parable. But it, it, the, the, the gist of the story was that there was consequences to their misbehavior, and that you intended to punish them for something they had done wrong, and they understood it that way. Sometimes, and sometimes, the, the story was what I wanted from them, how I wanted them to be, how I wanted them to live. Yeah. That they already understood the consequences. It all depended on the circumstance of my kids. So that when you intended to communicate, and was, and when was, you intended to communicate to your children that you were going to punish them, you used language that made that clear that the punishment. But I only used language that they had access to. Okay. So then the I never used any new language. How, how did we then explain? I didn't create the language of punishment. How did we then explain all of the language of punishment that Jesus uses? I've cited just the tip of the iceberg, and it's more than no. I've cited. Well, okay. Why punishment and judgment language using his own using his own words to describe a punishment if punishment wasn't the intended? It's not because he wasn't intending to describe punishment. How do you know? God told me. What do you mean, how do I know? When someone holds a belief, how many times are we going to go around this horn? When somebody holds a belief, like I do, you hold it because you try to understand it in the local, global, and historic context as very best you can, and you make a determination. Wouldn't, the, wouldn't the logical answer be... No, there's no logical answer. There's no single logical answer. Wouldn't the logical answer be 
that Jesus communicated judgment language and punishment language because that's what he's trying to convey, punishment and judgment. How can you know a priori that that's not what he intended to do? I don't know a priori then, that that's not then what, what it is. Evidence can you I know by context back? because it doesn't fit the narrative. Because when you don't hold the view that God punishes people like that, then punishment language doesn't mean that. So what I'm using is an internal understanding of what I believe the story to be. Not an external. So the text is not normative. It's your internal That's right. The text is not normative. So, the so text is your internal particular. conversation with yes. the burblings of your heart. No, it's not the burblings of my heart. Don't diminish it. Don't diminish it. That's not what I'm saying it is. You do that a lot, and it's fair, but because you can't trust your own situation, I get that. That's fine. That's not mine. That is making your experience my obligation, and you don't need to do that. So what I'm saying is I have a way that I have to understand, just as you do, that becomes consistent with the entirety of my story, my context, the global context, and the historic context. But I'm not free from it. It's not normative. It's not objective. It's me trying to say, this is how I can best understand it. And I would suggest I'm a major player in that. So I did suggest it's, it's, it's probably correct to say the text is not normative, you just said that, but somehow your experience is normative in determining no. what Jesus is meaning. No, it's not normative. I didn't say the text, I didn't say there has to be a normative, and if it isn't the text, then it's got to be me, or if it's not me, then it has to be the church. Well, what I've projected is the, the notion of normative. And anybody who's listening to this and leaning over their friend, they're like, what do they mean by normative? We're using a particular kind of phrase that you and I know has a meaning set. And you know that I don't hold to that. And I think what you're doing is saying, if I can get Doug to say that he doesn't think the text is normative, then that will send up the flags that people shouldn't listen to. Him. Is that? I'll ask you that later. I think that's what's going on. Because you know, and all you're doing is trying to build this thing for a later conclusion. No, I was asking you a line of questions, basically trying to get your understanding of the scriptures. But did you it's not clear from your answer that you made it clear that, that, that you are really the major player in determining what the meaning of the text is? Okay, I would not think that that would be clear from what I've said. That I said it's me, it's my context, it's my community, and it's the globe, it's as much global connection as I can find in history. And then for you to say, oh, so you're saying it's you. I don't know why that's confusing for you to get. I don't know what that is. I don't know how to do that. Maybe I need to use different words, but I will just spend the next minute and a half keeping saying those things because you keep asking me the same question and I keep answering the same answer. If you're trying to say, Doug, out yourself is holding the scripture as non-normative, but rather as particular, that was started with that. I, I tried to, I thought I did even. I started with that. I tried to say we're all in a stream, and when we're in that stream, we're going to understand the story according to that stream. That, that's that's what I, I, I don't see why that's the big last 20 minutes that we're together around this question of is hell a place that that became the thing that you wanted me to say, and I feel like I've been saying that from the start. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> all right. I'll let you take a second and gather your notes. Oh, All right. <laughs> you ready? Uh, Twenty minutes. I'm looking at the timer. See okay. if he's ready. Go ahead. Okay. What was with those questions? What were you getting at? <laughs> I was fleshing out your hermeneutical principles. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, 
hermeneutical uh, space between uh, uh, certain things that we hold very confidently, certain things that we hold rather tentatively, and it, that's sort of on one continuum. And on another continuum, my experience is, is yours this way, um, that the importance of a topic does not necessarily put it somewhere on this continuum of how strongly we feel about it. So you can feel very strongly about some things that we don't think are very important, yeah. and very loosely confident about things that we think are really important. Is that fair? Yeah. Would you say that? Yeah. When it comes to this question of hell as a place, or better yet, for our purpose, afterlife narrative, can you talk a little bit about where you find yourself on that continuum? About my feelings regarding that topic? No. Okay, so this continuum, there's things that we believe, and we have a high level to a confidence to a yeah. lower level of confidence. Are there things about your belief system regarding life? I don't, I don't like the phrase after life, uh -huh. because I don't think you do either. It's not a, not a very, it's sort of a graphic. But of our life when these bodies are not the ones that we're living in. Uh -huh. so, some people call it the real life. Some people call it everlasting life, eternal life, afterlife, whatever. Okay, so. On that continuum of your stuff you believe about all that, not just the, the placeness of the furnace, mm -hmm. but where are you generally on your level of low confidence to high confidence in the language that you have to describe that? Okay, regarding hell. On a scale of one, no. to, oh, on, on a scale of one to ten, we'll say ten being the highest confidence. So ten's confidence. Ten's highest confidence. Okay. Zero is no confidence. Yeah. I would say You're like a beautiful little uh, Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. Uh, yeah, with a little light up column for everything. Right, hell. And it's got the two decimal points. It's beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm I'm 9.9 .9 confident that uh, of what I understand of hell. And what do you okay? What what the text is is getting at? Okay. Anything else? How is hell the it? only thing you think about in the afterlife? No. <laughs> right. No. So of, of stuff you think about afterlife, I mean, and I wasn't being just flippant there because I know both of us came this like I don't orient everything around hell, right? Yeah. So it's okay. So what else um, in your in your sort of structure of things related to afterlife? Well, if we come back to the creed in in, in our tradition, the Lutheran Church, uh, right after the sermon, we confess the Nicene Creed, and I think there's a beautiful section that talks about. Christ's return and glory. And I think that uh, the hope that we have in the resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, and and all of that, it, I think it does play a very important meditative role in our daily devotional life as we as we fix our eyes on Christ and the cross and, and really what it is that we're hoping for. So, in the continuum, I mean, is that is that not is that not a, a, a useful question for you to me to ask you? I, I'm I'm having a difficult okay. time understanding the concept. Yeah, I, I, what, what I'm just trying to get at is, okay, on hell you're nine point nine. You came up with a number and everything. Yeah. How about any of the rest of it? Which part? Is that the afterlife stuff, the continuing life, the everlasting life stuff. Well, are you? Are you I mean, come on. Uh, are you? I'm ten. I'm ten confident that we're not going to be up in heaven playing harps for eternity. That sounds as boring as. Hell. Yeah. 
My point exactly, laughers. Okay. Harps. Harps, you're ten. Okay. Why, why in your tradition? I mean, so people on the twit are, are saying, like, get them back to hell. Get them back to hell. about hell and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I can feel a little out of juice on that one, but um, maybe you do too. Um, about how much more we can talk about that, talk about the way we talked about it. Um, why does your tradition, being a confessional Lutheran, Missouri Synod, after the word has been proclaimed in preaching, use a creed, why do you go from gathered community, word, sacraments, to creed? What are you doing there with that creed? Well, one of the things we confess in the creed is the communion. And it's only Nicene. Well, no, we confess the Apostles' Creed when we don't have communion. And okay. so, and then on Trinity Sunday, we confess the Athanasian Creed. Okay, so you you pick between creeds depending on the church liturgy yeah. as a part of an overall church calendar. Right, right. Okay, what's with these creeds? Uh, you know, it, it comes As back. a text guy, what I really want to know. Like, like, I don't need a Luther lesson because I, no, no. I teach at Lutheran seminaries and stuff, so I get that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just telling, I'm starting to frame the question. Don't give me the whole, as a text guy is what I was getting at. Like, you, Chris. Yeah. What, what are you doing with the creed? That's right. I think that a good case can be made from the, from the early church all the way to now. The creeds have played an important role mm -hmm. because it gives us a hermeneutical key to unlocking the scripture and rightly ordering it. So it's, it's a key. It's a key to unlocking the scriptures. Mm -hmm. it, it shows you us comfortable the way with that when yeah. you hear it repeated back that way? Absolutely. So the scriptures need to be unlocked. Uh-huh. What locked them? I would say our sinful minds. I think that uh, one of the things that... Uh, so the creeds are more powerful than our... Well, yes, we do. The creeds are more powerful than our Christian... Than our, than our sinful minds. Yeah. The creeds undo what our sinful minds did. Uh, no, the, what happens is, is that because of our sinful nature, when we approach the Word of God, it's really easy to read ourselves into it and not to rightly understand the story. Well, that was okay. Amen, brother. And so the, 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 the apostles have left us this wonderful thing called the apostolic tradition. It's a meta-narrative okay. to, uh, to, to orient ourselves yeah. in the text so we understand okay. really the right way to see it. Okay, so it unlocks the creed. It unlocks the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So there's something hidden about the scriptures after they've been proclaimed no. with sacrament. No, it's not that the scriptures that's are so unlocking there doesn't mean that. It's not that they're hidden. It's just that when we... Let me, let me yeah, give you an example. Let me, let, me, let me explain this. Is that uh, one of the things that uh, the Roman Catholic Church basically said to the reformers was that without the church rightly interpreting the scriptures that it would basically become a free-for-all. Okay. And then in reality, that that's exactly what happened. So, so it's fair to say that one who argued earlier... I'm an objectivist around scripture and scripture alone also uses creeds to understand the very thing that stands alone. The creeds, again, orient us so that we properly... So you're in a community of interpretation. The creeds serve as a communal interpretation function. Explain communal interpretation. That they were a larger community. I'm part of the body of... Christ, the okay, so how do they unlock? I'm trying to I'm trying to use another word to unlock because I couldn't tease that out of you. Okay. The unlock the scriptures. How do they do that? I'll give you an example. Don't give me an example. No, Tell I'm, me I'm, how I'm, they I'm do gonna, that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example, but, and that's how I'm going to answer your question. When you read Irenaeus' work against the, the against Valentinians, Val, Valentinians were not yeah, accepted. Okay. Right, yeah. 
what happens is, is that in book three, Irenaeus makes the argument that what we're seeing here is, is that the, the Gnostics are coming to the text with all these bizarre ideas regarding aeons and these mystical things that are not found in the text. And the other point that we pointed out is, is that we can reject what they're saying because this doesn't flow with the creed, the apostolic tradition that we've received. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, is it gives us a way to orient ourselves not only with what the text says, but to also help us to understand what we're to reject. What teachings we shouldn't be listening to that are foreign because that's not what the apostles Because the, the scriptures couldn't tell a person in their own cultural language person couldn't use their own cultural language to know what teaching they've just heard about the scriptures that are in agreement. So the creeds help that happen? Yeah, in yeah. fact, I would argue that the creeds help protect us from fanciful interpretations. Right. Like okay, so Irenaeus, that's a good one. So Irenaeus, um, was Irenaeus wrong about anything? Sure. What was he wrong about? Um, I, just I give me one. I don't know offhand. Uh, uh, name it with like a color and we'll pretend that it references something. Um, he had Purple. a bizarre thing regarding prayers to the saints. Okay, how do you determine what, and what, what Irenaeus was right about and what Irenaeus wasn't right about? I have to come back to the scriptures. Okay, so the scriptures interpret what Irenaeus says, and Irenaeus is what tells you that the creeds are used to interpret. No, the creed that Irenaeus received, he received from the But you quoted Irenaeus, you quoted, quoted Irenaeus as the rationale for why creeds are important, but you said, oh, he was right about that, even though he's wrong about other things. Aaron so is he like the Phelps to you, no. that he's wrong about something, but could be right about something else? I think that's a completely unfair uh, characterization. Well, of course you do, but, so that's a no? <laughs> sure, it's a no. So why are the Phelps wrong? Why? Because their teaching con is contradicted by the Christian Wasn't Irenaeus' teachings that you told us contradicted by the Word of God? Isn't that what you said? Irenaeus, about Irenaeus is a so, sainted brother in the Lord. Okay, when, you, when you're telling things, he, that does not put him outside of Christ. Okay, so but, but you said the reason they're out is that their teaching doesn't agree with Scripture. Correct. And the reason Irenaeus was wrong is it doesn't teach with Scripture, but it doesn't put him out. Yeah, but so at some point, it's an amount of things, or it's the topic of things. I, I think it would have to touch on the gospel itself. When, when you look at the okay, gospel, so as you determined when someone Aaron, Aaron Harris never thought he was outside of it. No. The Phelpses don't think they're outside of it. Right. So who's the final attributor, uh, uh, arbitrator of that? You. The word. But the word is the very thing they say they hold right. There. Okay, so you got the point. All right. Um, We both ended up having to talk about hell more than we normally do. Correct. In what ways would this conversation about maybe you being reminded by your own tradition of the importance of hell change you in the way you're going to be living, leaving this, leaving these days? You know, I spent a lot of time studying the topic. I really began studying it in depth back in July, and as a part of this, yeah, you know, in preparation for this, and. I gotta tell you, in studying it as deeply as I, I have, I've really come to the appreciation of just how serious our sin is and how screwed up Did you, we are. Was there anything that you believed previously that you don't believe now about this topic, as general as you want, that your serious study caused you to learn or to know? I wouldn't say there's anything that I didn't already believe. I just think that the, my understanding of it has grown in the what do you mean your understanding that. grew, but you didn't learn anything new? No, I didn't. Nothing I already previously held to was contradicted. 
Why didn't I ask that? I said, what did you know? What, what do you now know that you didn't know before, not what contradicted it? And you said, my understanding grew greatly. Yeah, and Help I me understand, in what, in what ways did, it under, did your understanding grow since okay. July? Okay, I, I can actually ask you this question. I think I know where to go with this. Um, one of the things well, when I set out... The truth I, would be good. <laughs> when, I, when I set out to, to study this thing, i got to admit, I started with kind of an idea that I don't like the doctrine of hell. And that I can, it's, it's one of those things where we discuss it as kind of like, we talk about it in, in, in terms of, yeah. it's... It, it's really seedy and, and, yeah. and somehow it's below God or something like yeah. that. And I kept coming back to the passage that states that God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. And what I see what I see in the dichotomy between hell and grace is really two sides of a very profound understanding of the nature of God, both his love for us and what he's done for us, as well as the, the, the just aspect of God's personality. So, so, so you've become more deeply acquainted with something that through, I don't mean this in a faulting way, but through a whole lot of pressures has sort of caused doctrine of hell to slip to a less prominent place in your life. You did not believe it, you did not hold to it, but you didn't really, you know, sort of like, you know, like I, I don't mean to make this, I swear when I say this you're going to be like, so you think hell is losing weight? Um, but I, I, that's not what I mean. But like, I, I realized, like, ah, I gotta quit eating those scones at Starbucks in the morning because they're making me fat. Yeah. I, like, I kind of realized that, right? Like, all right, I knew it. If you'd asked me, I would have told you. But the lived experiences, I gotta take it a little more seriously. How are you gonna live differently? Because the scripture is profitable for correction, for teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. Yeah. So, the, so the good works of every one of us, yeah. I know that's an uncomfortable phrase, the good works of every one of us, for conclusions, the good works of every one of us could be clearly before all of creation. So all of creation. I'm going to mix a Jesus metaphor. So all of creation can join in and praise God. So that all can praise God. Do your good works before men so that all can praise God. Get to my closing argument. So, What's, what's spurring you on to love and good deeds? Because now your understanding of this topic is... You know, one of the things that's also interesting about the topic of hell is, is uh, Christ's tying that doctrine back to caring for people. And, um, and it, it's, it's profound and it's deep. And, and it's very convicting in some ways because it's very clear to me that I haven't done enough and that I don't think I could do enough. And yet, because because doctrine of hell is, is linked back to caring for the poor, to isn't, isn't visiting the one in prison, I think that it's important that we that we keep that back as our focus, so that we're, we're loving your, and serving our neighbor. I don't mean to interrupt you, but isn't in your tradition, I mean, I'm not stopping you from saying it, but isn't in your tradition the view that you could do something, not the language that you use? That you could do something so that someone doesn't end up with the consequence of hell? Yeah. Isn't your tradition not very comfortable with the language of, I should really do something so someone doesn't go to hell? Or no? I don't think it's implicit in our theology. I think there's a culture within the Missouri Senate where evangelism is, is and really reaching out in that way. It, 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 I think that's one of the things that's culturally broken. Yeah, but doesn't it, for some of the cultural effect of that come from this notion that that's 
that's the, the grace of God that we have no effect upon? I think that might be an incorrect preaching of the law and gospel. It's too much emphasizing the gospel and not enough. But it's a, it's a part of the tradition. Yeah, I mean, I, part, I, of the, part of the culture. I think it might be in reaction. Because I don't think culture and tradition are the same thing. So it's part of, yeah, the, it's part of the culture. It's part of the lived culture. It's part, part of the local culture, culture, and I think it's a knee-jerk okay. reaction. So, so what are you going to do to be more that way? Anything? To be more which way? To be more the way you want to be. The way that God's convicting you to be? Yeah. How are you going to be more the way you want to be around this issue of health? So it's become important for poor people. Anything going on with you about what you're going to do? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things we're doing is I'm going to be bringing on a sponsor that uh, that takes care of an orphanage in Oaxaca, Mexico. Yeah. So, you know, that's you're talking. Of, exactly. Oh, you mean they're going to sponsor your radio show? No, we're going to sponsor them. We're going to sponsor them. Okay, you're bringing on a sponsor, sir? No, no, no. I'm going to let them pay me to tell them all what's going on the next show. No. I have realized the legitimacy of my position on hell, and now I'm going to have a new sponsor. Um, hell brought to you by... authority uh, in his life. 
uh, he would take issue with that and say that God is his authority and that he's led by the Spirit and that uh, the, uh, the Word of God expresses a communal hermeneutic of some traditional stream that we can help but embrace God. Yes! <laughs> beginning to doubt my ability to get into that head of yours. <laughs> it's not that I don't understand you. That's what I just say it all night. You don't agree with me. All right, great. That was excellent. <laughs> Do you believe that, that mankind is actually in need of salvation? Is there anything wrong with us ontologically? I, I know you don't. That's just the spirit of the question. Is it a question? No, it's thought for thought translation. Okay. No. <laughs> it's, it's the TNIV version. It's the TNIV version. Love it. No. Excellent. No, no, a better, a better answer would be, yeah, we're all in need of salvation, but not because we have an ontological problem, but because we have a lived problem. It's not a problem in our nature. A problem in our lives. Okay. Do you believe that all mankind will spend eternity with God? I believe that all mankind will spend eternity with God. Chris, what would I do to that question? I would say something like, spend eternity is a word picture that I wouldn't use, but if I think, if you're saying what I'm saying, yes. If you're using spend eternity with, that's a particular thing. You forgot thing. to do this. If you're, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, then yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think the spirit of the question is, is everyone in on So, like at dinner, I said to some people, look, I think what gets somebody the favor of God is birth. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if that's, if y'all, I hold on about that, that's, yeah, that's what I think about that. I've seen about eight questions in here, all asking the same thing. Okay. Um, oh, would you Would you explain uh, Luke sixteen twenty six or Luke sixteen Lazarus? Yeah, it's a parable. Ruler, would you explain um, Explain what it means essentially? I mean, I've had literally eight questions all asking. Yeah, I think it's a parable that Jesus uses in Luke sixteen, and he and it's a particular kind of parable. Not all parables are the same. I think this is one even though it's using names of people in a different construct. It's a parable. And he's using it to have this discussion about the fact that when people are confronted with the realities of their lives, they ought to change <coughs> differently. Not exactly the ghost of Christmas, present, past, and future. Sure. But it has the notion that one is calling out saying, I wish I had lived differently. Okay. Um. Matthew 10, 28 says not to fear man, but to fear the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Yeah. The actual question is, how do you understand that verse? Yeah. Um, look, people can only do so much to you, but the real standard you ought to be following is the one that gave you life and breath and everything that was given to you by God can be taken by God argument. doesn't mean God takes it, but that kind of argument, which is, don't fear man, fear God. Don't worry if somebody else thinks your theology is wrong, it's a sort of modern day, late Saturday evening interpretation. Don't worry what his opinion is. That's not your standard. God is. 
You're coming along. You're coming okay. along too. Yeah, got it. Er, earlier in the debate, just just to kind of interact slightly. Yeah, because you've been killing all that. Yeah, somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. Imagine these poor people sitting on the line. I know. Like, I got a question for them. Um, earlier, you said that you don't have to fear God. Yeah. How how does that make? I mean, you're saying don't fear God, and you actually have a passage that's saying, yeah. fear God. And, and you just kind of interpreted it in a way that said, well, don't be afraid of the people, because they can only do so much. How does that all wrap up in, in your head? Well, How does that work together? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's the kind of thing where um, you'd want to say to someone, don't fear flying. But, you know, like, if you're going to be afraid of something, you really shouldn't be afraid of the food on the airplane. So it's Jesus saying, you people are fearing men. You're fearing people. Stop it. God's more important than that. If you're going to fear anything, fear God. But that's not the same thing as some statement where you go in and you pull it out and you're like, Jesus said it, therefore we should fear God. Because that's, as my friend says, there's four rules of interpretation. <laughs> you're taking me out of context. <laughs> Context, 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 and then what I think. And I just... I thought you said four things, I was just playing. Four, uh, three things of, uh, of rules. Context, context, context. It's a context question. Okay. But right, I mean, like, look, that's an out, right? So, I don't mean it that way. I'm just saying I get it that that's a freebie out. Sure. Context. So, I, I, I take it all very seriously. But, look, it's... I mean, I understand the very legitimate, real question like, dude, I've never even met someone who thinks like this. You were thinking that. I get it. That's part of the problem. I'm not saying you have to run around and find people like me. We met them last night. They're all over the place. There's people who think differently on these things. If it is utterly shocking that you haven't heard of another professing Christian he says they take the Bible seriously and wants to do it. And, and you've never heard any other arguments than the ones you've been taught from birth. There's a bigger story out there than that. And that sounds preachy and all. It's just because it's late. And I'm going to go home tomorrow. But really, this shouldn't be that shocking. There are churches all around. There's ways that you can engage very safely inside of Christian context. I'm not even calling you to interfaith dialogues. <coughs> But there are, there are ways, Chris and I, we ain't doing nothing magical by paying attention to each other and being friends. Like, we first started talking to each other on purpose because we think differently. Like, we each run radio shows, like, to get people to think like we do. And then we value going out there and talking with other people that think differently. So, I don't mean to be rude, but let's not be, let's, it shouldn't be so, like, blah, blah, blah. So, and maybe that's not, maybe I've overstepped there, and that's not uh, what's embedded in, 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 the, uh, in, the, in the air tonight. Sure. We all feel calm about it. This one was actually written by a Lutheran, I can tell. Because <laughs> you know who wrote it. I, don't, I actually don't know who wrote it, but it was written by a Lutheran. <laughs> uh, Doug. This is bold. <laughs> this was, this is I'm saying it, it's actually the question. Doug, do you realize you're not a good person? break God's law and and should rightly as a lawbreaker be sentenced to death? No. Okay. Uh, pastor. Pastor Doug. Much, much more formal. Uh, 
I've noticed that your view on certain passages of hell uh, is interpreted using uh, preconceived doctrines of your idea of what righteousness is. Is it at all possible that your view on hell is affected by a very low view of what the righteousness of God is and a less serious view of man's sin? Yes, it's possible, but I don't think so. Okay. Do you have a high view of man's sin? And, and, I've, and I've spent three hours trying to articulate that, so... Okay. I'll, I'll ask Chris... I don't need to dodge that question. I, I don't... I don't think yeah, right. I don't have a high... I, I, I don't... I, look, I don't have a high view... Uh, I, that, again, and I know people are like, what is with this guy in language? It's as if words, you know, mean something. Well, it... It, I don't have a high view of man's sin. I think I have an appropriate view of how we should view sin. But when I differ with someone else, they might say that that's a low view. I just don't use high-low as categories of views. I don't have a high view of anything or a low view of anything. So uh, it's a tough question for me to... Because I know that that's code inside of a context sure. of what high view means. Yeah. I don't speak that context. I don't use that... That's legit. Thank you. Um, is hell a fiery furnace? Literally, are there, I guess the spirit would be, are there flames? Is that the, the whole of what hell is? Over and again, Jesus constantly uses metaphors that refer to fire. And one of the things I found interesting as I was studying before the debate was that I, I wanted to study of it that took it, you know, more literally, like more along the traditional lines, and also try to see if I could use a few different things. And um, what I found interesting is that even among some of the more liberal scholars that I read, they, they understood that the, the fiery language metaphor was getting at something else, and um, that what it was pointing to was probably something more than that. And so the idea is, is that if you take it, if, 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 if we're talking about, okay, is it literally a fiery furnace? Well, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's the right way to look at it because it's this ginormous lake of fire. That's the way it's described, okay? But um, then some people would say, well, listen, you know, how can it say that it's utter darkness, that there's really flames and that there's worms that don't really die? These are all pictures of it. And so, um, what's interesting is, is that some scholars, the way they approach this is they basically say, um, understanding that the metaphor, the metaphor of language, the similes that are being used, the word picture that's being painted, that the reality is probably far worse. But the most helpful description that I saw was one where somebody compared Jesus' suffering on the cross and basically said, if you want to get a true picture of what hell is like, Jesus being separate from the Father, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and pain and excruciating torment that he was going through, that was, that's hell in a microcosm, now expanded out over an eternity. And now you got the correct picture of it. Do you actually read Greek, Doug? Yeah, but I haven't studied Greek since graduating seminary in okay. two. So when I have to do that, it's with people who know it better than me, and a lot of, a lot of, a lot there, of there are several questions that all involve Greek that, that I'm not... If, if that's what it comes to, yeah. just, just, you know, 
And anyone who asks those, just so you know. But I was going to ask, I mean, let me answer the formal question. I was going to ask Chris, because he says that the Greek of this word Jesus said, did Jesus say it in Greek? Um, probably not. So what, when you say Jesus said it, what you mean is he said it in Aramaic, and then someone translated it into Greek. So when you use the Greek word, you're already using a word in which a translator, good one, great one, the best one in the history of the world perhaps, did. So it wasn't exactly Jesus who said it in Greek, right? Right, and this okay. I think is, it gets to the issue of inspiration.
So there you have it. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. Uh, you can email me if you'd like. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we need your generous gifts and financial contributions to keep doing what we're doing. Visit our website, pick one of the yellow buttons, and support us. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy which Jesus Christ won for you on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.